0: Turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Hebrews chapter 2. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. This is the very Word of God. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning father god we come before you this morning humbly asking that you would remember your promise and not allow your word to return to you void but father may your word be at work through the ministry of your spirit here this morning that those who hear might be renewed that they might be transformed that they might be equipped to bring forth every fruit of righteousness that you have prepared for them to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine John the Baptist languishing in Herod's prison. We are told that John was the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. The the last of the prophets who pointed forward to the coming king. And the one who had been privileged to announce his imminent arrival. And yet, because he had been faithful. not, Not because he had neglected, but because he had been faithful to his calling. Because he had not failed to call even the rich and the powerful to repentance. He was now Herod's prisoner. If Jesus was the Redeemer King, if, if Jesus was the one who John had announced him to be, it didn't make sense. If Jesus was, in fact, the long-expected Savior, if he was the promised Messiah, it didn't make sense to John while he was in prison. And so he sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one? Or should we look for another? I wonder if you've ever been there. I wonder if you've ever been so confused and, and just weighed down by your circumstances. That you began to wonder if Jesus was really the Savior you thought Him to be. You began to wonder if He was truly the One. It's the question that the Hebrews who received this letter were facing. Because of their devotion to Jesus, because they had received Him as Lord and were now resting upon Him for salvation, even as they endeavored to follow Him in the course of their daily life, because of their faith, They were now facing persecution of various sorts. This is not what they thought salvation would look like. And like John before them, they were wondering if Jesus was the one, or should they look for another? Most of us have never faced the kind of persecution that John faced, or the the persecution that the Hebrews were facing There are those in the world today, of course, who who do face such persecution, but the the persecution that we have faced, while it may be increasing and while it may grow in the years to come to this point, it has been mild by comparison. And yet, nevertheless, the trials we face are not always mild. The difficulties that we must endure, the, the hardships that we have to pass through, they are often severe troubles are a part of life in this fallen world and if you haven't realized it yet you will soon enough receiving and resting upon jesus for salvation does not make your troubles go away if anything it sometimes makes them grow And that is why we are tempted in the same way that John was. That is why we are tempted in the same way that the the Hebrews were. We We are tempted to go looking for a better Savior. We are tempted to go looking for one who will deliver us from the trials and the tribulations of this life. And it is that temptation precisely that the author of Hebrews is addressing The Hebrews who who received this letter, they were being tempted. They were being tempted to go back to Judaism because they believed in Judaism. They would regain the protection of the angels through whom that law had been delivered. They knew the Old Testament story. They knew the power of, of God's hosts. They knew the way that they could protect and work for God's people. And so they wondered if those angels might not be a better savior than Jesus and the author is pleading with them not to make that mistake pleading with them not to go that route not to drift away from the gospel which they had heard and, and believed but as we've seen on previous Sundays he, he supports that plea first with a with a warning he asks them, how will you escape if you neglect such a great salvation In other words, he is warning his readers that forsaking the gospel, the the gospel that was declared by Jesus Christ himself, the the gospel that was attested by the very power of God through through miracles and, and gifts of the Spirit, to forsake the gospel of Jesus Christ brings with it dire and eternal consequences. The one who forsakes that gospel will not escape the coming judgment. And so this was his first reason, the the great danger of neglecting this salvation. But now he pairs with that a a positive reason, a a second reason. He points them to the eternal reward of following Jesus. He he says, now or, or for, depending on your translation, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. The implication of what he's saying is that the world to come was not subjected to angels, it was subjected to Jesus. Jesus is the ruler of the world to come. And so his logic works like this. He is is saying that because Jesus is the ruler of the world to come, if we would have an inheritance in his coming kingdom, then we must not drift away from the gospel that proclaims him king, lord, And Savior. We must pay much closer attention that we might not be moved from the hope of the gospel that we had believed. And it is that argument that I want us to consider in some detail this morning. And I think to feel its weight, we first have to understand what he means when he says that Jesus is the ruler of the world to come. Then we must see how he became the ruler of the world to come. And finally, we must see why he became the ruler. Of the world to come. So let's begin just with the simple fact. Jesus is the ruler of the world to come. It's it's the clear implication of verse 5. He writes, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Now that little word for at the beginning of of verse five is is significant. Some translations have now, but it's it's really the same word that he used at the beginning of verse 2. The author is using that word because he wants to connect these verses with verse 1. He wants us to see that he has given us a second reason not to neglect the salvation that we have heard, but to pay much closer attention to it. He's given us a positive reason. He's pointing us to the fact that Jesus is the ruler of the world to come. And the world to come is clearly a reference to his coming kingdom you remember that we saw back in chapter 1 that the author told us that we are now, even now, living in the last days. The former days were the days of, of promise and anticipation. The days when God's people looked forward to the coming of the promised Savior. The one who would reestablish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The one who would reign with perfect righteousness and peace forever and ever, world without end. The latter days, or or the last days, are the days that dawned when that king was born. The last days began with with Jesus' incarnation. For as Simeon announced when Jesus was presented at the table, Jesus is the consolation of Israel. He is the long-expected Savior. He is the promised king. However, while the birth of the king initiated the last days and the the fulfillment of all of God's promises. That fulfillment is not yet complete. As the author himself will say in verse 8, we do not yet see all things in subjection to Him. The kingdom is here, but it is not yet fully realized, and therefore we still look forward to the coming kingdom. We still look forward to the world to come, The world that is here already, but not yet here in full. The author says it is this world, this coming kingdom of which he has been speaking, as he's been speaking about the salvation of God's people. And it's important for us to get this because it's, it's vital to his argument. We must recognize that this coming kingdom, the world to come, it is our inheritance in Christ. You see, salvation, the, the salvation that Christ brings to us, it is not merely about being saved from the guilt of our sin, nor is it merely about even escaping the misery of our sin, but it is about being restored. Being restored to that vision that we heard this morning in Psalm chapter 8, that, that vision of, of, of man created in God's image to rule creation on his behalf. We, we were created to be kings and queens, and Christ came that we might be restored to that position under him. As we sing each Advent, He came to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. And so if He is the King of that coming world, it implies an answer to the Hebrews' question. The Hebrews were wondering if angels might be a better Savior, if they might be able to do a better job of, of protecting them from the trials and the tribulations of this, of this life the author of hebrews is reminding them that it is Jesus alone who has the right to give the kingdom to his subjects it is Jesus alone who is king of the world to come and so what better savior could there be than the one who rules all things than the one who is king of the age to come this is the point that he's driving home and quoting Psalm chapter 8 notice what he writes beginning in verse 6 He says it has been testified somewhere what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him you made him a little while lower than the angels you have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet I have to admit that I've sometimes taken comfort in the way that he introduces this quotation I have a hard time remembering exact references. I can sometimes get the book. I can sometimes get the chapter. I can seldom get the verse. And so I I like the fact that he says, somewhere it says. But I don't think he uses that language because he can't remember the reference. It's not actually what he is is getting at here. He literally says, someone somewhere testifies saying. And he uses that sort of language to, to minimize the identity of the human author. He is calling his readers to hear what God has said. He is reminding them that it is important because God said it. We we see this in the way that he quotes scripture throughout the entire letter. Very often he doesn't mention the human authors at all. Very often he simply says, God says, or the Holy Spirit says. We we saw that throughout the first chapter. Here he mentions the human author, but he, he leaves him unnamed, and he does so so that we will remember that the the Old Testament prophecies are waiting, not because they were spoken by great men, but because they were spoken by a great God. And he wants them to know that that same God is now speaking to them through the Son and through his apostles and, and prophets. He wants them to know that this is the very word of God to them. And So having indirectly reminded them these words are important because they are the words of God, He proceeds to ask the central question of the psalm. What is man that you are mindful of him? As I said, the the quote comes out of Psalm 8. And you'll remember that Psalm 8 begins with with David contemplating the majestic glory of God. The glory that he sees revealed in the heavens above. And as he contemplates God's glory, as he he just beholds all the wonder that is revealed in creation, he cannot help but wonder... God, if you are capable of all of this, if this is but the the work of your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him? Why would, would you put all of creation under his feet? Why would you give him dominion over all the things that you have made? Why would you crown him with such glory and honor? This is David's question. The Lord caused David to think that all of creation had been subjected to man. It must be that he is reflecting upon the words of Genesis chapter 1. Remember what we read in the creation account. We are told that God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion The creatures whom he made in his own image. His mandate for mankind. And think about what those words mean. As I said, those words mean that God created us. He created human beings to be kings and queens in his creation. He created us to have dominion over his entire universe. To rule it on his behalf. That is what you were created for. And it is that unimaginable privilege that sends David's mind reeling. But of course, man never fulfilled this grand calling. Instead of ruling under God's dominion, our first parents rebelled against God. They refused to rule as his representatives As His image bearers for His glory. And instead they sought to create, they sought to claim the throne of God for themselves. And thereby their dominion and their authority was frustrated. Because of their treasonous rebellion, creation now rebels against us. Rather than willing submission, creation now resists our rule at every term. Instead of flourishing, we now experience futility. And this is why the New Testament authors began to see Psalm 8 as a messianic prophecy. As a preview of Christ's messianic kingdom. By becoming a little lower than the angels for a time in His incarnation. Jesus, through his death, had reclaimed for mankind, as our representative, the crown of glory and honor. He had reclaimed the rightful dominion that mankind was supposed to enjoy. We were created to be instruments of God's dominion. We lost that privilege in the fall, but now through his work of redemption, Jesus can restore us. To the position for which we were created. He now rules all things on his father's behalf. He has become the king of creation. And if we will stand with him. Then we will again be image bearers of God. Ruling for the good and the glory of our king. There's a problem. There's a problem. The problem is, we don't yet see Jesus ruling all things. We, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. I think this is beyond dispute. G.K. Chesterton said this is, this is one fact of theology that, that has empirical proof. The world is not yet put right. No one would look at the world and conclude that things are now on Earth as they will, as they are in heaven. No one would would look at the world and say, yes, all futility has been removed. On the contrary, death and sin still run rampant. In this world, we experience and know all manner of trouble. In fact, as I said, that trouble is the problem. That trouble is the reason why we are tempted to go looking for for better saviors. It's, It's what tempts us to wonder if Jesus is truly the one And so it raises an important question. How do we know? If we do not yet see all things in subjection to Him, if His will is not presently done on earth as it is in heaven, how can we know that the world to come has been subjected to Jesus? How can we know that in Him we will in fact inherit a kingdom? What is our guarantee? This is the question that the author is answering in verse 9. Look at what he writes. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Hear that again. Hear hear what the author is saying. We don't yet see all things in subjection to him, but we see him. We see Jesus. We see Jesus, who for a little while in his incarnation and death was made lower than the angels, but now has been crowned with glory and honor through his resurrection, ascension, and, and session at the right hand of the Father. Jesus' incarnation and death was His humiliation, but with His resurrection, He was exalted. He was glorified. He was crowned and and seated on the throne at His Father's right hand. And so, yes, we may not yet see creation subjected to Him, but we see Him on the throne. Now, obviously, we don't see Him with our own eyes. Remember, the Hebrews didn't either. The ones who received this letter hadn't seen Jesus with their own eyes. How then can the author say, we see Jesus? Because we see him in the words of God, in the words of Scripture, the words attested by the very power of God through the ministry of the Spirit. We see Jesus in his own divine revelation. We see Jesus with the eyes of faith. With those eyes of faith, we see the resurrected Lord sitting upon the throne. We see Him establishing His kingdom. And we can know that if He has conquered sin and death, if He has risen victorious as the first fruits of the resurrection then his kingdom will not fail to come if we see the first fruits if the first fruits have already been harvested then we can know that the full harvest will not fail to come this is what the author is telling us if Jesus is in fact risen as you know that he is because you see him with the eyes of faith if Jesus is in fact risen then you know you know that his kingdom will not fail to come and not only will His kingdom come but it will come for us it will come as our inheritance look again at what he says he says that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because why because of the suffering of death he earned this crown he earned this throne through His suffering and death. Yes, He was always the eternal Son of God. But He became the Savior of sinners. He became the representative of mankind. He became the one who can restore us to that position from which we fell by humbling Himself, by taking on a human nature, by submitting to death, the death that we deserve to die, and by being obedient even to the point of death on a cross. That the record of debt that stood against us might be wiped out, nailed to the cross, paid in full. So that when he rose again, it was not only his victory, but it was our victory. And the victory of all who are with him. It's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Because he was obedient even to the point of death, God has highly exalted him. Bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And he did this. According to His grace for us. Notice what the author says. By the grace of God, He tasted death for everyone. This doesn't mean that every single person will be saved. The the New Testament as a whole makes that clear. But because He tasted death for everyone, The New Testament can proclaim without wavering that everyone who receives and rests upon Jesus for salvation, all who call upon his name, whoever believes in him, they will be saved. The one who receives and rests upon Jesus Christ will never be put to shame, for his kingdom is forever. Jesus tasted death not merely so that he could be exalted to glory, but so that he could bring many sons to glory, as the author says in verse 10. So let all of that sink in. Just, Just contemplate the wonder of it all for just a moment. The author is telling us, please do not go looking for a better Savior. Because in Jesus you have the best Savior there could ever be. He is the one who tasted death for us, so that we who deserved death, might instead know life in the eternal coming kingdom. To walk away from him then is to walk away from an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance in the world to come. No angel can give you that inheritance. Whatever earthly saviors you are tempted to trust cannot give you that inheritance. Jesus and Jesus alone is the ruler of the world to come and he alone can give you the kingdom. Yes, in his mysterious wisdom, he allows us to pass through the floods he allows us to pass through the fires. He does not save us from all the trials and tribulations of this present evil age. But, by tasting death for us, he has secured for all who believe in him an imperishable inheritance in the world to come. And thus we must face Jesus' question honestly. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? You may find saviors who can deliver you from the temporary afflictions of this life. If you serve money, it may make your life more comfortable here and now. If you serve pleasure, you will likely have more of it here and now. If you serve prestige, you may enjoy the praise of men in this life. But only Jesus can give you eternal life in the world to come. Only Jesus can make you an heir of the kingdom. So the question is this. Will you entrust yourself to him? Will you pay much closer attention to the things that you have heard lest you drift away? Will you stand firm by the power of his grace upon the hope of the gospel which you have believed? To get to Canaan, the Old Testament people of God had to travel through the wilderness. It's the same for us today. But if we will follow him, he will not fail to lead us The Promised Land. And because He will not fail, because He is the ruler of the world to come who delights to give the kingdom to His people. That's one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in Your goodness to us, we rejoice in the promises that You have made. And even more, Father, we rejoice in your faithfulness to those promises, a faithfulness first demonstrated in the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the guarantee of our salvation. Father, give us the eyes of faith to see Him even now, crowned with glory and honor, seated at your right hand, that we might know that whatever circumstances you call us to pass through in this life, that there is no power in all the creation, spiritual or otherwise, that can separate us from your love or thwart your purposes for working for our good. Father, give us this faith that we might walk in it all our days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.